And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, June 28th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this new technology has the whole nation hallucinating. Plus, a nearby state undertakes regulatory reform officials think would work in Washington. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Labor Department has more than 500 business computer applications. All that software needs constant care. And Mangala Kupa, the Director of Business Application Services in the CIO's office, leads that caretaker effort. Kupa, who was a finalist for the 2023 Leadership Award from Women in Technology, tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about consolidation and rising use of shared services. Most interesting aspect of my role is really looking across all 27 agencies we serve the ability to find commonality, the ability to kind of improve the efficiency of operations is really um, appealing to me in my role. And so I would say um, it's it's a pretty cool job. <laughs> One of the things that labor should get a lot of more credit for and is that centralization that it went through because it's very difficult for a lot of agencies and, and to address things like you know shadow IT and to set up some guardrails so people feel like they're getting their IT needs met at the same time. They're not hamstrung by IT as well. It sounds like you probably came into this role just as the centralization was happening. Can you discuss maybe your background a little bit? I'm with the department for 13 years in my current job for three years. I joined just when the first agency moved into shared services, which is ETA. Um, Prior to joining the department, I have um, a good um, decade plus experience in the private sector. Um, I am that techie that you normally hear about, you know, started uh, as a developer, grew into ranks of being, you know, architects and the managers and the program managers. When the time came to, um, I've been very busy being in the private sector and I said, I need to be doing something more in the public service area. When I joined, it was just shared services beginning, right? That's where rubber meets the road. Now you actually have the responsibility coming in. All the planning is done. Now it's the time for reality to kick in, right? And also mission application support is the new wing that OCIO inherited. So it's a huge change management exercise because it's not just about IT and systems, right? Because you got people that moved from one area to the other area. The developers or the support staff or the vendors who were supporting were working directly with the agencies now they all moved under the OCIO umbrella. So right off the bat, I had kind of the awareness that it is as much as much of a people exercise as it is of a systems exercise. You know, it was important to provide that kind of a home feeling to the people who kind of moved in as well with the systems, maintain that system stability, don't break anything, obviously, <laughs> as you're inheriting. Uh, but I would say that we've been very successful in doing that. And, and, and not just we are, I would say we were, we are not just surviving, we are thriving. And we are beginning to unleash the real potential of shared services. And I think next five years is going to really make a sea change in, in department's portfolio, in our ability to really, really use technology to drive the mission. Did you have to kind of shift people around because they were in roles that maybe weren't suited for them, but you had to find the right role for them? Absolutely. That has been a, almost a step one of it. And also you, you need to provide 
a backing, right? If, if there are, if there are, let's say, mess ups or failures that as leadership, you want your employee to feel like they'll be supported. It starts with listening to them and really, really understanding what keeps them here, what are their aspirations and motivations, and genuinely being invested in their career. One thing that I'm very passionate about for others in my, in my staff or wherever I go is really, how can I help my staff reach their goals? I feel like at this point in my life and my career, my job is to support others. Where are you at today with shared services and how do you foresee it kind of continuing to evolve or to get to reach that next five years as you as you continue to thrive? Big focus right now is um, how do we improve the, the, the portfolio and, and is it supporting the agency's mission? Where can we complement um, with newer technologies that we already have? Are we using the newer technologies for the benefit they provide, right? So the, there's so many areas that we're focusing on. The one favorite area that I have that I would like to touch on is um, really connecting capabilities across agencies. What that does is that next time when you have to build a new solution or a new system, instead of building it from scratch now we we kind of make it like a collection of what's already available and you quickly build something so the time to market the time to benefit from the solution is going to be a lot better so we're doing a lot of foundational creating capability metrics out of it establishing centers of excellence so that the technology is used for the right purpose in the right way i think you've been around technology long enough to know that sometimes it, it may result in a lot of talk and no actual benefit. So what we want to make sure is that there is actually actual benefit that our agencies will uh, will experience uh, with this shared services initiative, which is really the driver in doing this for the department. And I, I feel like we are well on our way and, and really connecting the dots, investing more into um, SaaS solutions, cloud-based solutions, you know, reducing our footprint where we don't have to spend time in, in jobs that can be automated and use that uh, that power to focus on more value-added work. Uh, I think that's a that's an area, whether it's through chatbots or AI or other means. I think um, there's going to be a lot of work in that space in the next five years, along with really, really understanding, connecting the mission, breaking it down into pieces that can be shared and the pieces that need to remain unique. I, I think that's going to bring about a sea change uh, next five to six years. What are some of those metrics that you are using to say, okay, these applications are meeting their goals or the opposite, you know, these applications need to do better. We need to maybe move them to the cloud or upgrade them in some way, or we need to get some user-centered design involved here because it's not not helping our, our customers enough. Anything that you can offer? We do have a formalized service level agreements that we measure every quarter. So we measure for each application the uptime availability. We measure how agile and reactive we are for emergency events. That's another SLA. Uh, we measure whether we are on track with projects, which tends to be standard OMB measure as well, schedule variance, cost variance, if you're familiar with those terminologies. Are we on track with our development initiatives? Are we reducing our dependence on legacy technology, right? So these are all measures that we formally measure. And, and and we look for, you know, are we improving? Are we getting better? Are we getting worse kind of thing? So that's kind of uh, some of the measures. But on the metric side... You know, when you move to a shared services like you did, it's it can be very difficult to make a lot of people happy, right? Like, oh, well, I liked it my way. The way you're doing is different or maybe it's better, but I can't see that it's better because it's not my way. Was that one of the big hurdles you had to get through to as you created the shared service office and started to move applications from 
the missionaries or the agencies into this centralized approach? I think it's more of not my way or your way. It's more of a fear of can I continue to have the support I need? Um, I think, you know, what worked very well for me personally, as well as for OCIO is that we are very transparent. When when there are problems, we were transparent about them in, in, in kind of, you know, sharing that information as well as making sure that we are persistent and rigorously follow up and make sure that problem is resolved. I think working to create transparency and a very trusted relationship with your customers is the key to really, really kind of bring them along to a new method of doing things, right? And and and, and more importantly, we listen to just because our way is the best way in our minds doesn't mean much sometimes, right? So we are open in listening to the conversations. Um, I I do not I do not say this very lightly. OCIO is blessed with smart leadership. Yes, you're right. You know there are concerns initially, and we have been able to really really address those concerns by having a listening attitude, explaining. Trans- creating transparency, acknowledging when mistakes are made, but also carving out a path of how we will fix them. So all of these above actions, I think, helped us um, kind of create that relationship with our agency customers. We could go down the path of user experience. We could go down the path of digital transformation, but maybe talk just a little bit about some of your, your big priorities coming up over the next year, year and a half or so. Are there specific programs or projects that you're working on that you'd want to kind of offer some highlights into? It's a large portfolio. Every agency has a number of initiatives that that are carved out for not just this year, but also for the next year. We want to improve our, you know, mind safety, occupational safety systems. Um, we, we have um, a methodology that we use to kind of look at where we still have legacy technology, which is a huge piece in the government. We, we have made tremendous progress in actually modernizing that area. We still have a um, couple of few areas that where we still need to kind of get up the modern legacy technologies that continues to be a focus going into next one or two years. We actually have a standard list of, uh, you know, shorted list, uh, list of uh, systems that we know that we need to do that. We also want to, you know, continue to engage with emerging technologies. I think there is still a lot of value that that needs to be uncovered with things like chatbots and where you could kind of automate some of the, you know, mundane, you know, administrative kind of activities or manual activities to more automated ways of doing things. I think we'll continue the focus there. We'll continue the user experience, obviously, which is a big piece of making government services more accessible to the public. I think that continues to be our focus. There is too many to list for me (laughs) as far as a specific thing, but these are the themes that we continue to explore with each of our agencies. And and as I said originally, the Department of Labor, what excites me is that we have a very diverse mission from in the mind safety, occupational safety, statistics, you know, ensuring workers and wages. And, and so these themes help us kind of cater that concept to each mission and, and make improvements in, in that space. Mangala Kupa is the Labor Department's Director of Business Application Services and a finalist for the 2023 Leadership Award from Women and Technology. Speaking there with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a nearby state undertakes regulatory reform officials think would work in Washington. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
Virginia officials under Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin have launched a reform of the state's regulatory system. The new Office of Regulatory Management, ORM, covers all agencies. It requires them to do detailed economic reviews of proposed regulations. Here with the details and why it could possibly apply at the federal level, the deputy director of that new office, Reeve Bull. Mr. Bull, good to have you on. It's great to be on, Tom. Great to speak with you again. And when we last spoke, you were at the Administrative Conference of the United States, which has fashioned and oversees the regulatory process here, so you know whereof you speak. Tell us what's going on in Virginia and how it is different from what had been happening on the regulatory front. Absolutely. Thanks again for the opportunity to join you this morning. So, yeah, you know, we're very excited about the initiative we're undertaking here in Virginia. You know, Governor Youngkin's goal is is to make Virginia the the best place to live, work and and raise a family. And regulation is is a big part of that. We uh, are looking at the regulatory process with, with fresh eyes and we're trying to promote both transparency and accountability, trying to make the process much more open, much more participatory, and then also really focusing on regulatory analysis, making sure that uh, agencies take a really careful look at the regulations they're adopting, as well as the regulations they already have on the books, and try to design them in a way that that, that streamlines that uh, still, of course, promotes uh, important uh, public health and and safety goals, but that does so in the most cost-effective way possible. So that's kind of our overarching goal here in Virginia. Because at the federal level, the requirement has always been to do cost-benefit analysis. In some cases, certain agencies are outside of that requirement at the federal level, correct? That's exactly right. Basically, any so-called independent regulatory agencies, so like the FCC, the SEC, the FTC, they're all outside of the OIRA process, the centralized review process. So a significant percentage of the regulations on the federal level don't go through the, the centralized process that a lot of us are familiar with. So in Virginia, then, do you have entities that were outside of the way it's normally done by the bulk of agencies now moved under the ORM, the new Office of Regulatory Management? A great question, and the answer is yes. We call it the Administrative Process Act. It's the same as the Administrative Procedure Act at the federal level. I mean, one of the first things we found out when we started is about half of the agencies in Virginia were exempt. They didn't go through the traditional Administrative Process Act process. Um, So what we did is under uh, Governor Youngkin's Executive Order 19 is we brought everything, or at least all of the executive branch agencies, which is 98% of them into the centralized review process. And we think this is important for for efficiency reasons, but also for transparency. About half of the regulations weren't going on the town hall website, which is sort of like our equivalent of regulations.gov. So now everything is up there for the public to see and to participate in, which we think is is a major improvement. Give us an example maybe of the type of regulation that would have been outside of the normal review process that would take place for the bulk of the agencies, as he said, what agencies in Virginia did come in that were not there and what regulation or what type of regulation might now be approached differently? It's a little bit um, random in terms of which ones were outside of a few agencies 
Like I think the uh, the Virginia Marine uh, Resources Commission and a handful of others had targeted exemptions, and then a handful of agencies were, were completely exempt. And it was basically just something that built up over the years that certain things would be would be made exempt. You know, another example would be if it's something that's required by federal law or even by state statutory law, that would be outside of the process. And it certainly makes sense to have a more streamlined process in those cases, which we're keeping. Uh, but we think it's also important that it still, you know, be public, still go up on the website, and that it go through the analytical process. So um, we think that this maintains the right balance. You know, it still allows things to move quickly, and a lot of the exempt actions do, but it ensures that it's still transparent and that the agencies are doing the appropriate analysis. We're speaking with Reeve Bull. He is Deputy Director of Virginia's Office of Regulatory Management and a former member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Getting to the regulation process itself, now that everyone is kind of brought into it and it's under one umbrella, what has changed about the process of creating regulations that uh, would have a material effect on how agencies operate? Sure. One of the major things that has now changed is that the agencies now do uh, what we call a regulatory economic analysis for all of their regulations, as well as their guidance documents as well. Basically, any action that an agency undertakes uh, goes through this process where they look at what the problem is they're trying to solve. They look at possible alternative approaches, um, and then they look at the cost and benefit. Um, then additionally, there are some targeted analysis. They look at effects on, on families, on local governments, on small businesses, some of the entities that are particularly affected by regulations. And then they put this analysis all together and fill out this form. It's a relatively short form, actually. It's only about eight to 10 pages, which we think is a real difference compared to what you see at the federal level. Uh, regulatory impact analyses can run into the hundreds of pages and are often very, very complicated, uh, whereas ours are pretty streamlined. They're pretty short and they're to the point. You know, they're something that a member of the public could easily pick up and say, you know, could react to it and provide input to the agency. Yeah, the guidance documents have been an issue because there were, in the Trump administration, certain guidance documents that were online that disappeared when the Biden administration came in. Nobody quite knows why. You would see this kind of normalized or that itself would be regulated such that guidance documents would be more easily available. Absolutely. Absolutely. We think that that's critically important uh, because guidance is, is really important. You know, it's something that especially the, the regulated community uses extensively in order to understand here's how to comply with the regulations. So we think it's absolutely critical that it be available, that every single guidance document be uh, accessible on our, our town hall website, and that the new guidance documents go through the same process. We really think it's a model and it's something that we hope that, you know, others States and, and hopefully eventually the federal government to replicate. Right. So that's my next question. If presuming we could get all the agencies that are now outside of the ACUS type of process into it in the, the OIRA process, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and they were all brought under there, what would change, should change in the regulatory process itself, regardless of who's involved in it? Because cost-benefit analysis is now part of federal regulating. Absolutely. So we think, or at least from my perspective, over the last 40 or 50 years, I think that the development of regulatory impact analysis at the federal level has been a very important and positive development. But I think that there are a number of challenges. One that we discussed earlier, a significant number of agencies aren't under the OIRA umbrella. Another one that we just discussed, guidance documents are sort of treated separately. 
Uh, and then maybe what I think is the most critical issue at the federal level is it's actually it's really only a tiny, tiny percentage of regulations that actually go through the full RIA process. Traditionally, it was rules above $100 million. That's now been increased to $200 million under the new executive order. So you're talking about, I think, only maybe around like 2 or 3% of regulations that meet that threshold. There are a handful of others that get swept in. But it's, it's a pretty small percentage of regulations. But then they go through this very, very extensive, detailed analysis. Whereas what we've done is we've, you know, cast a much wider net. It's every regulatory action, but it's a more streamlined analysis. And we think that that sort of achieves the right trade-off. We think everything should be part of the process. We think making it more streamlined, simpler, both brings in additional parties, allows the public to react more effectively, and then also, you know, makes it more straightforward for the agencies to undertake where it's not such a major time burden. So that's sort of how we've achieved the balance here. And you mentioned that there was a legislative enablement for the Commonwealth to do this. Do you feel that there would be congressional action, say an amendment to the Administrative Conference Act to enable the government at the federal level to make this change? Technically, via Executive Order 19 at at the Virginia level that that we rolled out this process. And um, at, at the federal level, I think some of it could be done via executive order. But I think there's also, you know, been some exploration of doing some of it legislatively. I know for the last 10 or 15 years, there have been various bills debated in Congress that would extend OIRA review to the independent agencies. There's some debate over whether the president himself, uh, him or herself, actually has that authority. So I think you could do it legislatively, and I think that would, you know, achieve some some buy-in. But I think there are also certain actions that the president can actually undertake via executive order. For instance, simplifying the regulatory process. I think that's something that you could, you know, issue a supplement to executive order 12866 and actually achieve that way. So I think it's perhaps all of the above. I think congressional action would be welcome, but I think there's a lot the president can do as well. And of course, then it would end up in the courts to decide, like so many of these things do, and who knows what venue they would shop for that one. Reeve Bull is Deputy Director of Virginia's Office of Regulatory Management. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Really enjoyed being on. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, it's out, a procurement rule banning contractors from using TikTok. But first... This new technology has the whole nation hallucinating. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The baby boomers used LSD to hallucinate. Nowadays, people use generative artificial intelligence to hallucinate, to create information that seems credible but is misinformation. Now the Government Accountability Office has published a detailed study of generative AI and its implications. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Science and Technology Assessment, Brian Bothwell. Brian, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And this is a fairly brief report, but it's kind of packed with information. Maybe just the one-sentence description for people that may be having their heads under a pillow for the past six months. Generative AI is one branch of AI, and what characterizes it? Well, generative AI is a it's a content creator. It's a system that, with prompts, maybe just like kind of minimum prompts, will answer your questions. It'll create pictures for you. It'll create video for you. 
it can actually aid in some complex design processes like uh, designing molecules and new drugs or, or generating code for programming. And when you type in your prompt, is it going out to the Internet and finding everything it thinks is relevant, or do the different platforms have their own, I don't know, body of knowledge built in? The large language models, for example, like ChatGPT and BARD, are trained on a large, large amount of data. What exactly is in that data? I mean, that's, that's I think, um, that depends on who's creating the model. Um, so when you type in your prompt, the model is taking that prompt and then looking at the data it's been trained on to give you a result. Right. So then it shares the same possible weakness with every kind of AI, and that is so much depends on what you use to train it. Exactly. And I'll, I'll just give you a for instance. Personally, I went to, went to the, one of the large language models, and I asked it, you know, just for kicks, to write a short bio about me. And I had to give it a second prompt to tell tell the model that I was with GAO because there's other people out there with my name. And it came back with a bio really quickly, but there's some things wrong in it. You talked about hallucinating at the top of the, the, the show. Um, it said I graduated from college from a place I never went to. It said I had a master's degree in a topic that I did not. So there, there are, it's going out and scraping data or been trained on this data that's out there, but it doesn't necessarily give you an accurate response. Right. So it can go from pretty close to complete nonsense, basically. Yes. Or, or, or a lot of times, I think, in between, where it gives you a lot of accurate information, but it's interspersed with things that are not true. Because one of the points in your report is, how mature is it? So that's my question. How mature is it? It might be very mature in terms of the capabilities of the algorithm, but if the data is all flawed, then it doesn't matter how good the algorithm is. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, I, these things continue to advance. to keep training them on more and more data. Newer models keep coming out with um, more data, more parameters. So they're improving, but you still need to be able to check and see, okay, is the, is the output actually accurate? And that's, that's where some of the issues are. And besides false information, you list some of the other possibilities, some of the challenges of it. What are the chief ones that people need to worry about besides misinformation in the first place? Yeah, we list several of those, and I think one is is can you trust these models? What and how do you how do you perform oversight on these? For example, these are we generally call big black boxes. You put something in, you get something out. But what's going on in the model? And since these are so large, have so many parameters in them, it's really hard to to be transparent. Another thing we already talked about was the false information and the hallucinations. There are also some economic issues like. Um, what data are these models trained on? If you go scrape the internet for a bunch of data, you might be collecting up copyrighted data, other sensitive data. Privacy risks also can involve, when you put in a prompt, what kind of information do you put in? Where does that information go? Is that stored in the model? Is that used by the model? Is that more data for the model to be trained on? Those are the kind of issues that um, that people need to think about. For that matter, it could be scraping up other documents generated by generative AI, and therefore you get increasingly less accurate 
the more you go. And and that's uh, yeah, like that's multi- another point. It's, that it's, it's like multiplying fractions. Right. I mean, if you can, I mean, it, theoretically, if you have your model trained on inaccurate data, and then you are producing more inaccurate data based on that, if you feed that into your database, yeah, I think you know what you were talking about might happen. We're speaking with Brian Bothwell. He's director of science and technology assessment at the Government Accountability Office. On the other hand, there are opportunities possibly for it. What do you think of the chief ones there that you found? Yeah, there are some fantastic opportunities. There has great potential applications across education, government, medicine, and law. These opportunities here are really great at maybe summarizing information. You can go ask the model a, a question about a topic, and it's going to give you a maybe a slightly flawed answer, but it's going to give you a lot of good information about the topic you're looking for. These models can actually enable automation and make it much easier to produce things and take less person power to do that kind of thing. And it can improve productivity. You can, I can think of an example where it's like if you have somebody who has to do copywriting or they have to do um, advertisements for their products, you can ask one of these models to write something up and you've got something that you uh, – it's not a blank sheet of paper anymore. You've got something you can start with and refine from there to use for that kind of purpose. And it strikes me that uh, going back to the challenges, what would happen if someone tried to copyright, say – something that was created by generative AI when presumably whoever typed in the same prompt would get the same result. So how could you purport to claim that's copyrightable? Yeah, and the U.S. Copyright Office has already got some guidance on on copywriting works using generative AI. They've already said if you generate something solely from a prompt to a generative AI system, you can't have a copyright for that. And what did you find when you tried it out in this document that GAO has published the prompt was to draw orange cats in an abstract style, and you got some pretty good cartoons out of it. What does that tell us about the the process to use these things in a responsible way? Well, we didn't actually use the process to generate that graphic, but we used our you know, our knowledge and what we learned about how they work to create the graphic. But I've been working with plenty of people who have you know tried this out on the side. We're not using it as an agency. We're you know sort of look, looking at the tool and seeing. You know, what steps we need to ensure proper use, but we're not using it for our work. But we've got plenty of people really interested in it, you know, and they're doing this on the side with their personal accounts. And there's some pretty interesting stuff that they've they've developed. Yeah. So the pseudo reality of it, I guess, ultimately is what people need to worry about. That plus whatever privacy might have been violated or whatever, whatever, you know, data that is maybe uh, sensitive but unclassified would end up in there. Yeah, that, that, that is one problem. I think that's what, for example, some, some agencies have, are worried about is, is you, you really can't expose non-public data to these systems because you don't know where that data is going, that information is going. And that's, that's, a, that's a concern. Brian Bothwell is Director of Science and Technology Assessment at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. I had a great time, Tom. Thanks. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report and check out those orange cats at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, it's out that procurement rule banning contractors from using TikTok. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Federal Acquisition Regulation Council, the FAR Council, earlier this month issued something the procurement community has been expecting, an interim rule that bans TikTok, the app, 
from certain contractor devices. Here to explain the implications, Haynes and Boone partner, Zach Prince. Zach, good to have you back. Good to be here, Tom. So this rule is interim, which means it's in effect, but not final. What does it do exactly? So that's right. So the the rule is implementing a requirement that was mandated by Congress and then uh, with some implementing guidance from OMB back in February. It bans any application put out by ByteDance Limited, which is the company that owns TikTok or any affiliate from being present on any IT owned or managed by the government or any IT used or provided by contractor under a contract. Right. So that leads to some fuzziness because are people that religious, let's say, about keeping one device for personal and one device for business? Because millions of people are affected here, correct? That's right. So I've been getting questions from clients with just that issue. You know, do we now need to say anybody who's using our email system on their phone, for example, can't have TikTok? And do we need to impose real restrictions to ensure that is the case? The rule's not totally clear on what contractor employees are going to be covered. So if you're doing back office support, doing HR, accounting, et cetera, that incidentally is covering a government contract, are you one of those covered employees? A lot of open questions. And a lot of companies, just as even in some cases agencies, have a so-called BYOD, bring your own device policy. Well, how many Ds are people supposed to be of their own because, you know, no one has an unlimited budget for devices? That's right. So it's always made me a little wary to have my employer have access and total control of my phone. And I think a lot of employees likely think the same. Uh, It would be better if you just use your company technology and then you can keep your personal and work life separated. But the reality is these days it's hard to do that in general. All right. So this rule then, what does it impose with respect to bids, solicitations, the communications that go back and forth between the government and contractors? So this rule is essentially the same impact as the uh, telecommunications ban or the Huawei ban. It's a new clause. It requires you to be representing that you're in compliance with it. Failing to comply with it is likely a material breach of your contract. So companies have to be doing some due diligence and should have been doing it already for a while to be sure that they're really implementing this. And I think they ought to be going further anyway. There have been concerns about TikTok for years from the cybersecurity community. It is a good policy, I think, to uh, prohibit TikTok anyway on company devices or anything that can touch your networks. You know, notwithstanding the question of why anyone would spend more than four minutes looking at TikTok in the first place, (laughs) I'm just showing my age, I guess, but it seems like a river of ridiculousness. But notwithstanding that, what do we really know about the security implications? I mean, the hearings that took place a couple of months back in the Senate were sensational, but didn't really shed a lot of light on the relationship between TikTok, who has a president from Singapore, I think. I mean, it's an international operation. So it's kind of hard to gauge what's really going on, isn't it? It is. And I've spoken with friends who I trust in the cybersecurity space who tell me they actually do have a lot of faith in TikTok US as being really separated from the broader TikTok and being able to maintain data security. But the reality is commercial companies in China are treated as an arm of the state and any data that they have available to them as a company is going to be given to the Chinese government. So the firewalling might look good on paper 
Uh, it might even be real, but the concerns are significant enough that that firewall can be breached. That I think it poses a real security risk. We know China has police stations. At least we found one, you know, in the United States. And now they've got that listening post in Cuba, which is, you know, practically Florida. But there's another analogy here. Companies from nations with which the United States government can buy from Canada, Great Britain, France and so forth. Even those companies are required to establish air gapped boards of directors and operations in the United States. And that's how they're able to sell here to the government. Nothing like that really for TikTok. It's not firewalled in that manner. And even if it was, could you trust it? Because it is China after all. Yeah. And, and that the U.S. entity requirement is really if you're doing work in the classified space, you know, to mitigate any foreign ownership or control issues. But there was talk last year of trying to get TikTok to sell off its U.S. entity and really be entirely separate. There is, for obvious reasons, I think, strong resistance to doing that from TikTok. But the response when they refused was to start implementing a ban, at least on anything touching government contracts. And you bring up a good point with respect to people operating in the classified space or in the high security space, the national security space, intelligence. There's already probably a lot of restrictions on what people can do on government devices and what contractors can do a priori of the new rule on TikTok. Fair to say? Certainly fair to say. The problem is that there's always a gap between the rules and then what your people do, right? And that's why we see security breaches. The human factor is always the weakest in any of these cases. Now, we've got fairly, should be fairly sophisticated members of the military, you know, releasing intelligence information out on social media. And we certainly have that in the contractor space. So it's really difficult to get your people to be falling in line with the requirements. And TikTok probably shares with most social media and most, I mean, for that matter, shopping platforms. So many platforms do track your whereabouts and use location-based information to feed you stuff. And plus, their algorithms, you know, have this ecosystem of connection to advertisers. And so when you think about it, almost every social media app probably has the potential to give up secrets just because of the plumbing that is so complex for the purposes of data gathering and ad serving. They definitely do. I mean, you have to hope that it's mostly anonymized, but the algorithms are very sophisticated and are absolutely aggregating a ton of data. You could be talking in a room about, you know, your interest in an item and suddenly your social media stream has all these links to that item. Right. So getting back to the TikTok ban, then what are the practical implications? What are you advising contractors to do now? So I'm telling clients that while I think that you could fairly interpret this rule as applying only to direct employees that are clearly servicing a government contract, it is prudent to impose a broader ban, including on phone that's in part of a BYOD policy. You know, it's an employee's phone that they're using uh, to access company tech. You know, anytime you've got an employee that has their technology or any technology touching your systems, it is just safe to have a TikTok ban. All right. The rule's in place and you know the implications. Procurement attorney Zach Prince is a partner at Haynes Boone. Thanks as always. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Labor Department has more than 500 business computer applications. All that software needs constant care. And Mangala Kupa, the Director of Business Application Services in the CIO's office, leads that caretaker effort. 
Koopa, who was a finalist for the 2023 Leadership Award from Women in Technology, tells executive editor Jason Miller about consolidation and rising use of shared services. Most interesting aspect of my role is really looking across all 27 agencies we serve the ability to find commonality, the ability to kind of improve the efficiency of operations is really um, appealing to me in my role. And so I would say um, it's it's a pretty cool job. <laughs> One of the things that labor should get a lot of more credit for and is that centralization that it went through because it's very difficult for a lot of agencies and, and to address things like you know shadow IT and to set up some guardrails so people feel like they're getting their IT needs met at the same time. They're not hamstrung by IT as well. It sounds like you probably came into this role just as the centralization was happening. Can you discuss maybe your background a little bit? I'm with the department for 13 years in my current job for three years. I joined just when the first agency moved into shared services, which is ETA. Um, Prior to joining the department, I have um, a good um, decade plus experience in the private sector. Um, I am that techie that you normally hear about, you know, started uh, as a developer, grew into ranks of being, you know, architects and the managers and the program managers. When the time came to, um, I've been very busy being in the private sector and I said, I need to be doing something more in the public service area. When I joined, it was just shared services beginning, right? That's where rubber meets the road. Now you actually have the responsibility coming in. All the planning is done. Now it's the time for reality to kick in, right? And also mission application support is the new wing that OCIO inherited. So it's a huge change management exercise because it's not just about IT and systems, right? Because you got people that moved from one area to the other area. The developers or the support staff or the vendors who were supporting were working directly with the agencies now they all moved under the OCIO umbrella. So right off the bat, I had kind of the awareness that it is as much as much of a people exercise as it is of a systems exercise. You know, it was important to provide that kind of a home feeling to the people who kind of moved in as well with the systems, maintain that system stability, don't break anything, obviously, <laughs> as you're inheriting. Uh, but I would say that we've been very successful in doing that. And, and, and not just we are, I would say we were, we are not just surviving, we are thriving. And we are beginning to unleash the real potential of shared services. And I think next five years is going to really make a sea change in, in department's portfolio, in our ability to really, really use technology to drive the mission. Did you have to kind of shift people around because they were in roles that maybe weren't suited for them, but you had to find the right role for them? Absolutely. That has been a, almost a step one of it. And also you, you need to provide a backing, right? If, if there are, if there are, let's say, mess ups or failures that as leadership, you, you want your employee to feel like they'll be supported. It starts with listening to them and really, really understanding what keeps them here, what are their aspirations and motivations, and genuinely being invested in their career. One thing that I'm very passionate about for others in my, in my staff or wherever I go is really, how can I help my staff reach their goals? I feel like at this point in my life and my career, my job is to support others. Where are you at today with shared services and how do you foresee it kind of continuing to evolve or to get to reach that next five years as you as you continue to thrive? 
big focus right now is um, how do we improve the the, the portfolio and, and is it supporting the agency's mission? Where can we complement um, with newer technologies that we already have? Are we using the newer technologies for the benefit they provide, right? So the, there's so many areas that we're focusing on. The one favorite area that I have that I would like to touch on is um, really connecting capabilities across agencies. What that does is that next time when you have to build a new solution or a new system, instead of building it from scratch now we we kind of make it like a collection of what's already available and you quickly build something so the time to market the time to benefit from the solution is going to be a lot better so we're doing a lot of foundational creating capability metrics out of it establishing centers of excellence so that the technology is used for the right purpose in the right way i think you've been around technology long enough to know that sometimes it, it may result in a lot of talk and no actual benefit. So what we want to make sure is that there is actually actual benefit that our agencies will uh, will experience uh, with the shared services initiative, which is really the driver in doing this for the department. And I, I feel like we are well on our way and, and really connecting the dots, investing more into um, SaaS solutions, cloud-based solutions, you know, reducing our footprint where we don't have to spend time in, in jobs that can be automated and use that uh, that power to focus on more value-added work. Uh, I think that's a that's an area, whether it's through chatbots or AI or other means. I think um, there's going to be a lot of work in that space in the next five years, along with really, really understanding, connecting the mission, breaking it down into pieces that can be shared and the pieces that need to remain unique. I, I think that's going to bring about a sea change uh, next five to six years. What are some of those metrics that you are using to say, okay, these applications are meeting their goals or the opposite, you know, these applications need to do better. We need to maybe move them to the cloud or upgrade them in some way, or we need to get some user-centered design involved here because it's not not helping our, our customers enough. Anything that you can offer? We do have a formalized service level agreements that we measure every quarter. So we measure for each application the uptime availability. We measure how agile and reactive we are for emergency events. That's another SLA. Uh, we measure whether we are on track with projects, which tends to be standard OMB measure as well, schedule variance, cost variance, if you're familiar with those terminologies. Are we on track with our development initiatives? Are we reducing our dependence on legacy technology, right? So these are all measures that we formally measure and 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 we look for, you know, are we improving? Are we getting better? Um, are we getting worse kind of thing? So that's kind of uh, some of the measures. But on the metric side, you know, when you move to a shared services like you did, it's it can be very difficult to make a lot of people happy, right? Like, oh, well, I liked it my way. The way you're doing is different or maybe it's better, but I can't see that it's better because it's not my way. Was that one of the big hurdles you had to get through to as you created the shared service office and started to move applications from the mission areas or the agencies into this centralized approach? I think it's more of not my way or your way. It's more of a fear of, can I continue to have the support I need? Um, I think, you know, what worked very well for me personally, as well as for OCIO is that we are very transparent. When when there are problems, we were transparent about them in, in, in kind of, you know, uh, sharing that information as well as uh, making sure that we are persistent and rigorously follow up and make sure that problem is resolved. I think working to create transparency and a very trusted relationship 
your customers is the key to really, really kind of bring them along to a new method of doing things, right? And and and, and more importantly, we listen to just because our way is the best way in our minds doesn't mean much sometimes, right? So we are open in listening to the conversations. Um, I I do not I do not say this very lightly. OCIO is blessed with smart leadership. Yes, you're right. You know there are concerns initially, and we have been able to really really address those concerns by having a listening attitude, explaining, trans- creating transparency, acknowledging when mistakes are made, but also carving out a path of how we will fix them. So all of these above actions, I think, helped us um, kind of create that relationship with our agency customers. We could go down the path of user experience. We could go down the path of digital transformation, but maybe talk just a little bit about some of your, your big priorities coming up over the next year, year and a half or so. Are there specific programs or projects that you're working on that you'd want to kind of offer some highlights into? It's a large portfolio. Every agency has a number of initiatives that that are carved out for not just this year, but also for the next year. We want to improve our, you know, mind safety, occupational safety systems. Um, we, we have um, a methodology that we use to kind of look at where we still have legacy technology, which is a huge piece in the government. We, we have made tremendous progress in actually modernizing that area. We still have a um, couple of few areas that where we still need to kind of get up the modern legacy technologies that continues to be a focus going into next one or two years. We actually have a standard list of, uh, you know, shorted list, uh, list of uh, systems that we know that we need to do that. We also want to, you know, continue to engage with emerging technologies. I think there is still a lot of value that that needs to be uncovered with things like chatbots and where you could kind of automate some of the, you know, mundane, you know, administrative kind of activities or manual activities to more automated ways of doing things. I think we'll continue the focus there. We'll continue the user experience, obviously, which is a big piece of making government services more accessible to the public. I think that continues to be our focus. There is too many to list for me (laughs) as far as a specific thing, but these are the themes that we continue to explore with each of our agencies. And and as I said originally, the Department of Labor, what excites me is that we have a very diverse mission from in the mind safety, occupational safety, statistics, you know, ensuring workers and wages. And, and so these themes help us kind of cater that concept to each mission and, and make improvements in, in that space. Mangala Kupa is the Labor Department's Director of Business Application Services and a finalist for the 2023 Leadership Award from Women and Technology. Speaking there with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 